Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just joining us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can also sign up to be a producer of the show by submitting the questions that guide the direction that we head into today. Usually our second hour, we uh, spend uh, a little bit more time on something specific. Saturday is our education hour. We're looking forward to spending some time later on today with Universal Design uh, with Laura. But in the meantime, uh, feel free to submit your questions, either um, general education questions, as we have some of our educators here on the panel, or media and virtual production. Dave, what do we have? Well, we start the morning with Douglas Carmichael. Nope, Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, rather, Wilmington, Delaware. He's asking, could you, Tony or Laura on the panel, give us a little summary of the Conversations with Tony Mobley episode that a few people missed on Wednesday, one of his favorites? Go ahead, Tony. First, let me say good morning to everyone. What a wonderful conversation, authentic conversation I had with uh, Doctor of Music Arts, Peter Wilson, who was for 30 years a part of the Marine Band that plays for the president. He played for five of the last presidents. He also had played for some of the other presidents during, during his time, his 30 years in, in Washington, part of the band. Very authentic conversation. He is a fantastic musician and storyteller. And I will tell you, the story that he tells about the anniversary of President Obama and Mrs. Obama is worth the watch alone. It is a great conversation. I encourage you to go back and watch it if you have not. John, have you caught it? Uh, I have not. Tony, where would somebody find the conversation with Tony Mobley? You can find the conversation with Tony Mobley on conversationwithtonymobley.com. You can find it on LinkedIn Live. You can find it on YouTube on Conversation with Tony Mobley channel. Fantastic. I think we've just updated, Tony, your next conversation for next week uh, on our daily email. So appreciate uh, you giving us that update. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Rack mount UPS backup power systems weigh about 30 pounds on the low end. With a six unit rack case weighing another 30 pounds empty, should rack mount UPS be avoided to keep from injuring crew members and travel with desktop UPS instead? Go ahead, Jeffrey. That's really uh, depends on the situation type uh, type thing. Uh, you're, first of all, you're not going to be putting a case like that over somebody's head. Uh, it's mostly going to be low into the ground to begin with. So uh, I would put it into a rack case simply for protection, uh, banging on everything if you if you're moving it around. The other thing is, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of cords that that do come out of that UPS, uh, and one cord that goes in. Now I don't recommend that you. Uh, use that as a tether by any means, but uh, it will definitely, if, if any movement happens from that, you're going to start to see that cord get a little bit tighter. So you, you, uh, you just basically have to watch for it. Uh, 
keep them low and uh, you won't have any problems with that. Go ahead, Dave. Well, as a general rule, I mean, you've got to look at anything being 60 pounds is going to have to have two handles and two people to carry it around. So a lot of equipment, once it stacks up, and I come from the days of VCRs and videotape recorders where they weighed, you know, nearly 100 pounds, and no one guy was ever going to carry that out of the truck. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Harshid Trivedi on the panel today. Daytona Beach, Florida. Three, two, one, a liftoff. Lots of launches these days. However, one that might pique the office hour interest is the C-band satellites that are now in suborbit to help with the broadcasting TV radio. Any thoughts? Well, I know that um, those particular ones help with um, uh, communications that are typically um, interfered with, with heavy rain or um, uh, atmospheric uh, uh, disturbances. So very helpful. Uh, those launches are coming more often and are getting uh, uh, getting me more routine. Um, so go ahead, Dave. Well, also, there's a lot of more launch platforms. Everyone, uh, pretty much all the major countries, industrialized nations in the world now have launches and put up their own satellites. And so it's, it's getting a little crowded in the lower orbit. Um, there are Q bands up there for a very long time. Up here in Canada, we have both C and Q. That's KU. Um, the KU band is is also used for broadcast as well up here. Uh, we cover a very large territory up here, so satellites are sort of how we do television as well as telephone. Uh, a lot of our non-broadcast is carried over satellite around here. Uh, and I, I think uh, C-band is, is perfectly useful for even portable trucks and that sort of stuff. So... Um, I am interested, but then again, I'm, I'm looking at broadcast TV as a general service and wondering just how much longer people are going to rely on it. Yeah, good point. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Just doing a video pencil check-in. How many panelists are keeping up with improvements Michael Forrest continues to make to video pencil? Nigel? So I guess I should answer me because uh, i am using video pencil this morning um i have to tell you my problem with i love video pencil i think it's very easy to use it's very easy to operate it's easy to learn there's a lot of features my problem is my workflow doesn't have it in so i suddenly say oh i need to explain how this connects to this and something and it's not set up so you know the, it's the number of additional steps that i'm struggling with to remember that i need to have the Mac app working, and then I need to have the iPad, and I need to have the iPad in reach. So I have to tell you, if you need a video pencil, it works really well. It's really neat. I haven't followed all the latest advantages. I just keep forgetting to put it in my workflow. Dave? Yes, I've only just yesterday took video pencil, brought it down, put it on my iPad. Um, I started to learn, as Nigel says, the fairly specific connections kind of list and i've seen some of the videos that he's got there uh, i'm picking it up a little more at a time uh, i'm still not a telestrator type person when i'm doing demonstrations or stuff so i may find better uses for it than i i can consider right now but you know uh tony uh the video pencil is is emerging and growing as we speak so i look forward to even more advances and even maybe shadows on it and that sort of thing 
uh, but I'm I'm not too familiar with it yet. I've seen it been demonstrated, of course, here on uh, office hours. But uh, I am looking at a thing I'm going to be doing in the next year or so, and video pencil might need to be in that that chain. Go ahead, Danny. Oh, I can see you and read you. Well, you just can see fun. that I am playing. I am playing around with it as we speak, and I'm just voicing some text. So we're we're playing. We continue to play around with it, and I have a lot of fun with it. There's so many educational, I think, use cases for it. So I just want to encourage people to think about it when they have time and continue to play around with it. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I'm more on the side with Nigel in that I don't get to use it very often. I do think it's the easiest um, telestrating setup to use. At my work, because we're a, a PC shop, I can't, and I'm not allowed to install anything on it, I effectively can't use video pencil, um, so I'm still stuck with a hardware-based solution using my ATEM and a Wacom tablet. Um, and even that I don't use very often. Honestly, it's usually I need to collaborate with people, so I need other people to be able to draw on the screen too. So we're using some sort of shared whiteboard app. Yeah, you can also use the Shoot app and have a lot of the same functionality directly on um, your iPhone uh, for that app. And that gives you the ability to um, have like a second camera that you're using. Go ahead, Tony. And I happen to be using the Shoot app this morning as my primary camera. And so how you see me through Video Pencil is through the Shoot app, which is on the iPhone at the back of my teleprompter. And that is connected to my ATEM Mini. And I'm also using video pencil with the iPad and the virtual camera app on my M1 Mac Mini. And that is how I'm able to to uh, actually write. Because I'm writing on my iPad, but it looks like I'm writing on the actual camera. Which of the improvements, Tony, uh, have you found useful more more recently? I am still playing with a lot of the improvements. Uh, Michael has really stepped it up. And um, not only has he made dramatic improvements to Video Pencil, but the, the, uh, the whole suite of apps have all gotten updates. And so it's, it's really a fun time to play and experiment. And if you can find a way to bring it into your workflow, it's definitely worth the efforts. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Mike Beardmore in Reading UK. Is it correct behavior for DaVinci Resolve, DaVinci Resolve on a Mac OS X to need updating on the admin AC and the guest account separately? If I delete the unused guest instance, it deletes the admin on two. Jeffrey? still trying to unwrap that question there um so basically if you are if you install an app you need admin access in any way shape or form you can install an app through a guest account but you will need to put in the admin username and password same thing with deleting anything if you delete you could delete your personal data on the guest account 
But if it, when it comes to deleting the app itself, you still need to have that admin username and password. If you can delete a file, a, a application on the guest account, then that means that the guest account has elevated privileges somehow, whether they they know your password for the admin account or you you actually set it up so they have admin access. I would check as administrator, I should I would check to see if they do. Dave? I'm not a Resolve user, so I'm just asking for my own clarification. There's an admin account on the Mac. Is there an additional admin account on DaVinci? Jeffrey? Trying to think, I haven't used it in a while. Uh, uh, I don't okay. no, there no, there there I don't You just launch it is. and run it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So a guest account would be the Mac, someone on guest using yeah. a Mac. I've had this with other things like letting my my uncle have email access and use uh, his own access guest account. And and I think yes, if if you set up a guest account and you gave them permission to use apps such as DaVinci then I would imagine when you kill the guest account that that admin thing shows that he's not that admin disappears on the guest account. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like you. I'm still trying to unwrap this question in the sense that it may be a Mac issue more than a DaVinci issue that you're administrating an account and then you delete that account. Then you have to re-administer what resolve is connected to. I see that, uh, Mike is trying to help us out in the chat there. He says, I added the guest account after DaVinci Resolve was installed and it copied DaVinci Resolve over uh, over to it then. So that must have been the the really? order of operations. Okay. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and that's the correct that's the correct idea is uh, is the guest account will get as long as you when you installed DaVinci Resolve or any application if there is an option that says that you only want it to be on the admin account and not on the guest account, then uh, it won't go over to the guest account. But if you, if you, if you say put it on all of them, you don't check that, uh, then it will. Uh, when you add a new user, a new user will get the programs. Uh, and uh, once again, if they can get to your data, then there's something else going on. Uh, maybe you put in some sort of security change. Or, uh, like I said, gave them admin access, so I would look at all the profiles once again. Gotcha. All right, I think he added there, every update needs doing twice, was his comment there. So, um, we Well, that's a clue, too, because if he's installing it twice, once on his side for just his use, admin, and one for a guest, then there would be two copies, and then deleting the guest account would delete or disconnect from that copy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just still trying to clarify. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you mentioned there was a family account that he wanted to use it. Um, Roscoe chimes in that uh, it's based off of an SQL database there in the chat. The nice part about our community is um, giving it giving it air means that the whole community can chime in and help you out. Mike, I hope. You're able to get some direction there. Let's go to our next question. Next up is David Brady in New York City, New York, USA. Um, Noby Omniscopes. Running on a Mac Mini, my video signal coming in for analysis is an NDI screen cap from a Wintel Zoom Room. 
but audio is not present. What would be the simplest internal root audio into Nobi's VU meters? Yeah, um, I have to say, um, I noticed Mickey uh, chimed in in the chat too to make sure that the NDI audio is in the input interface. Um, I would concur with that. You can select uh, the different audio inputs if you're using the NDI as your as your input means. There are a couple of different ways that you can select. Uh, you can select different video sources, but yeah, if you have the NDI selected as your audio, you should have that follow through. Let's go to our next question. And from Douglas Carmichael, what applications are there for Cloudflare tunnels in production? Jeffrey? Uh, that's there and pretty much anything, anything that can access a web browser for sure. Um, anything that you can, you can create, you, uh, you can create a PC to PC tunnel through uh, Cloudflare. So it's really sky's the limit unless there's some app that's, that says I don't access the internet at all. And, uh, that or, or gap machine or anything like that. So. Go ahead, Dave. Is it possible Douglas is asking about what uses there are for Cloudflare tunnels? Yeah, I want to say that um, the tunnels are um, a good stand-in for what we would typically use a VPN for, uh, for some of the applications I've, I've looked at it to being able to um, tap into um, a local uh, network. If you're from afar, uh, you can use a, a Cloudflare tunnel to do that. Uh, Jeffrey, would you like that added in? Yeah, you can use your know, Cloudflare. It's it's just a brand to uh, VPN, a different way to do it. It's not a, technically a VPN tunnel, but it's their technology for a VPN tunnel. Um, so, and of course they have the uh, phone app, which I believe is called Warp. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, so you could do anything from your phone. You could do anything from your desktop. Uh, you just have to install an app to uh, to make the tunnel, and then uh, of course the direction that the tunnel has to go. And then you, I could, like for instance, last night I did a production uh, at a club on the other side of town. I could have easily just uh, used a Cloudflare tunnel to uh, bring all the video back here to do all the mixing if I wanted to. So uh, you use a Cloudflare tunnel for an AWS instance. You can use a Cloudflare tunnel. For for enterprise technology stuff, you know, creating VPN or yeah, or not not for VPNs, but uh, um, oh, I can't think of it. Anyway, the whole point is that uh, uh, you can use it for a lot of different things. It's just the sky's the limit. Go ahead, Dave. I first learned about tunneling when I was learning Unix way back in the ancient days. Um, I worked also at a university that had to transfer enormous amounts of uh, geotechnical data at about three o'clock in the afternoon and the whole campus would slow down while this enormous amount of data was pushed out of the university or moved from one place to another. And I'm sure Cloudflare, who's come along since then, uh, would have extra capacity in some of these tunnels and allow people to pass large amounts of information without affecting other networks. So it is, a, as Jeffrey's explained, it's a network to network tunnel rather than just a sort of VPN to many kind of situation. Fantastic. I do notice, too, uh, in our chat, uh, J.J. McCannis, one of our networking experts, mentions that um, if you're using it for uh, uh, production, you want to take into account the latency uh, that might happen as a result of something you may not be running from on your local network services. 
Let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Going to have to listen closely now. With the Satechi USB-C hub multi-port adapter, version 2, it has 4K HDMI at 60 hertz, 60 watts of USB-C charging. Uh, it's a um, Galliade, a GBE um, battery gigabit. kind of system. Oh, gigabit Ethernet. Oh, thank you very much, Jeffrey. Uh, SD microcard readers, USB 3 for an M2, M1. Can you get three monitors on an M1 or M2 mini with these adapters? Congratulations, Paul. You have our question density award of the morning. Uh, go ahead, John. From what I can tell from Amazon, no, because it doesn't have the display link technology, which allows you to um, basically use one output and split it into two different signals. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and it is a USB-C hub. It is not a Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4 hub. So you're going to get best 5 gigabits per second. And the more that you connect up to uh, up to this device, the less it's going to work. The, I always like to take I always like to take those seven and one things and just throw them away. But if you have to use them, a little test that you can run is plug a couple things in, and then plug a mouse directly in the USB mouse directly into it, and then uh, run the USB mouse around your screen. If you start seeing skips, then you know uh, while your uh, while your data is moving around. Then you know that this uh, this thing is not going to cut the mustard for whatever you do, but uh, you probably could only do one 4K monitor at absolute best on this thing. All right, thank you for our panelists. We've reached about the one third point in our show. Just like to remind the audience that um, please vote on uh, our questions to make sure that um, we spend the most time on the most relevant questions. Also, you can submit your questions for the rest uh, part of the show for our general audience and also for our second hour topics at officehours.global. Let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Which shared whiteboard app would you recommend and why? John, would you like to help us out? Yeah, I think it really depends on who's going to be collaborating on it. Uh, in my case, it's we're a Microsoft shop, so we use the Microsoft Whiteboard app. And it's really nice because it's directly integrated into Teams, which is what we meet on. We don't use Zoom. And more specifically, it will save the file into a OneDrive account with the appropriate sharing permissions. So you can set up everyone in the meeting is allowed to draw or edit this. And you can say during the meeting, a week after the meeting, for 30 days or forever. And it makes it really easy for multiple people to work on the same document. And you can even load it onto your iPad. Like during the meeting, I'm on the iPad drawing on the iPad with the pencil, and it's showing up on everyone else's screen as a shared document. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, like John said, whatever you have available, whatever the group is going to have access to is always the best um, first place, sometimes trying to move a group to something new because it has more features, um, the inertia can be less than easy. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I want to lift up two things. Uh, if you're in the Apple infrastructure, Freeform, which is something that came out with Ventura, I think is an excellent solution. Um, it's, if you're in Apple infrastructure, you already have it. And it's on all your devices. It is really, really cool, I think. And the other thing I wanted to lift up is old Apple Notes. 
it's amazing what you can do in Apple Notes and, and it's on all your devices. And if you're, you, it's easy to share with other people that are in the Apple infrastructure. So I wanted to lift up those two. Let's go to our next question. This is from Tony Mobley. You just heard from what is the latest thing that has Jeffrey has 3d printed. Jeffrey. Um, let's take a look. Nothing. <laughs> it's just, uh, it hasn't been, uh, have I, I was doing, uh, I was doing some promotional stuff. So, uh, I, I was trying to figure out what to 3d print back here. Cause I have down in the studio, I have the little, uh, the hexagon things, but I don't want to do that up here as well. Other than that, uh, I haven't had any real call for uh, 3d printing. So I kind of took the winter off. Jeffrey, do you do any um, SLA printing? SLA printing? Oh, sorry. Um, uh, do you do the traditional extruded uh, type of printing? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't have a resin printer. Uh, so it's it's all filament. And I was playing, I was playing with a... a some filaments are hit or miss. At the beginning of the year, I did redo my printer i put in the updated 427 board which is a silent board and then i put in a direct what's called a direct extrusion so basically what that means is usually uh your filament has to go through this thing called a bowden tube which is a piece of tubing and with the direct extru extrusion the uh all the pieces are put right on the same head so the filament goes straight down and out so you don't have to worry about that tube and, and all the problems that the tube has with it so um i was playing with some pet g which is usually the plastic if for somebody you know uh, usually plastic you would get in a, in a soda bottle and so because the the advantage of pet g is it gives you clear prints and now doing like a lighting thing in the background you want to have pet g uh for the uh for the filament there and, and i went through a couple brands that actually failed. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for a good pet G filament, uh, uh, company that will work with, with my 3d printer. All right, let's tune in next time to find out what's on Jeffrey's printer. Let's go to our next question. Should be a monthly feature. Next up is Morgan price joining us from Victoria, British Columbia. Which ways do you recommend bringing in video from one Mac into Zoom as a camera on a second machine? For example, if using a deck link into Mimo Live or OBS on a Mac Mini, how would you pipe the feed into a second computer which is connected to Zoom? Gotcha. So I'm reading your question. Morgan, it looks like um, you used the deck link as your example uh, to pipe that out. Um, that's something that you can use a capture card to bring in for the second camera. I'm assuming that your second computer is on zoom. Uh, Jeffrey, you want to help us out? Yeah, well, I would use probably use If you're saying that you want to have a camera, one camera, two and camera two being another computer, um, I would, uh, I could, yeah, you could definitely do OBS, but you're going to run into a bunch of problems that, uh, that Mac users have with running OBS. As long as you keep it simple, you might be able to pull it off without a problem uh, because there are people here that do use OBS on Mac and uh, and rarely have small problems with it. But uh, NDI would probably be your better solution. 
you would just have to be able to switch back and forth. If you want something that's going to do like a split screen or a super source, then you're going to have to get some software. Uh, and if you don't want to use OBS, then you're going to have to pay for some software. That's a good suggestion. Uh, Mickey weighs in in the chat that you could output your video via another port on the same deck link or additional video interface device that's sent through the signal on the video to capture the device. Yeah, like a UTAP, etc. So this is the way you'd connect it to your second computer. Helpful. Um, you know, if we have your differences between your computer that's putting out content and the computer that's connecting to Zoom, one reason you might want to do that is um, so a situation that um, I've actually been in is that um, I have uh, uh, my regular PC rig has uh, lots of monitors and I only have so much uptime with my UPS, but uh, the Mac M1 uh, could basically run the entire show as long as the uh, internet uh, keeps up. So piping that signal into the second Mac, which is much easier to uh, keep up for uptime as long as it has internet, means that um, a failover, I could uh, come in theoretically off of the second machine. So hopefully that's helpful for you. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada. Today is the one-year anniversary of the Office Hour Space Launch. We are out launching small rockets this weekend. Now, which end is up again? <laughs> um, John, do you know if it's the pointy end or the flamey end? Typically, it's the pointy end, but it depends on which side of the Earth you're on. Because if you're on the opposite side of the Earth, you're pointing that end down. So, I don't know. That's right. Well, you'd get, yeah. Good, uh, Nigel. It's definitely the flamey end down. Um, it was it was uh, a great event, and uh, John and the team uh, put on, and I think it marked a number of interesting things. It was probably the first time a whole bunch of, in volume, office hours people got together uh, in a physical place post uh, post the pandemic, and uh, it was an amazing experience to put bodies to faces because you finally saw the three dimensional full size scale model of the person. Uh, so that that was great. I was actually wearing my uh, my jacket with my patch yesterday in memory uh, of the weekend, uh, and I would again I would only say that if there's something going on which other office hours people are going to, whether it's NAB or any of these things, it's really worth making that that personal connection. It's great to have the virtual connection. It's great to have Zoom if that's your all your world. That's fine. But if you get a chance to make the physical connection, I, I have and deepen friendships as a result of it. It's amazing, John, and thank you for the patch. It's amazing what you can get a bunch of people for if you have the appropriate branding, especially here on After Hours. Good, Dave. Well, I mark this one-year anniversary as the time when I decided to become involved in office hours. I'd been watching for probably a couple of months before, and uh, when I saw what Office Hours did in the space thing, I thought, I got to get involved with these people. So for me, yes, it's an anniversary as well of me just deciding to participate. And it pushed me over the edge. I was just a lurker and observer, but I, I joined crew and I became, as you see, a panelist and stuff. And it's been just great for that year. So I credit OH Space for kicking me out from my dormancy. 
Welcome to have you along, Dave. Yeah, it it is amazing the uh, stone soup of a thing, the snowball rolling down the hill of a thing um, that this community uh, is capable of. Started off as just John wanting to uh, you know get a certification to be able to uh, uh, to launch rockets, and if you have office hours friends, they'll say you know not only do we have to uh, broadcast it, but We've uh, we've got to go over and above. So the production there, uh, if you uh, uh, check out, we had some second hour topics on there. I believe the um, the actual broadcast launch was was there as we covered it live on the show. And there's a lot of other uh, behind the scenes uh, looks behind things as well. So I'm sure John's pulling out his his highlight reels and, and going over them. Congratulations, John! Uh, Lift off was good. Just Spoilers. Eventually, it was good. Let's oh, go to our next even question. a year ago, yes, yeah, he's out shooting rockets up right now. So we'll wish him luck on those launches. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, for remote instructors, what equipment should be a part of your setup? All right, John, a little education question for you. It depends a lot on what you're trying to instruct on. I think the the most critical things are a good quality microphone is probably the most important. Um, after that, I would say for me, it's probably a good clicker. And I just use a Logitech clicker to um, advance slides, that sort of thing. As you're investing in your setup, I'd strongly recommend looking into an ATEM Mini Extreme, probably. So you have the super source functionality. Uh, the ATEM Mini Pro is also very good, but that super source functionality makes all the difference in the world. Those would be some of the, the first things I would look at on a hardware perspective. Dave? Well, it would, I guess it depends on what kind of instruction you're going to do and whether you're going to need to demonstrate uh, physically, uh, show off how to uh, disassemble a, I don't know, a lawnmower motor or, or something, then you're going to need more than one camera. And um, also you might need a whiteboard. You might need to be able to walk over to a whiteboard, do some diagramming, and as Tony's learning to do, to diagram right on your screen with a video pencil. Um, I think the essential stuff is what John is talking about. You want to start out as an instructor and you want to make sure you can be heard and seen, but also you have to plan things. So it would, I would include in my um, equipment uh, a day of planning to be able to make sure that your lesson is going to come across on the video as well. Laura. Um, yeah, kind of back to what Dave was saying about including in your equipment a day of planning, but also including in your equipment, um, extra hands, just because you're on zoom or another technology does not mean that a teacher can necessarily take on 200, 300 students at once. You still need the necessary personnel. Um, Alex has talked about this where you have one teacher presenting to all those, but you still have the other teachers supporting and doing breakout rooms and things of that nature. So um, necessary support would be another piece that I would think about. All very good answers. Um, Roscoe Jones from our chat brings out some of the basics, Ethernet, wire, good mic, and lighting. So Absolutely. don't uh, stay home without it. Let's go to our next question. It's from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Just started using Edge with AI. 
which took a two-minute sign-up to get. Is anyone else using this, and how does it compare with other AI implementations? Go ahead, Nigel. Well, we probably need Proto to do the analysis uh, a deep, but I will do a shallow analysis. I installed uh, Edge uh, with AI, and I also have something called Mac GPT on my Mac, which is like a, a UI that sits in front of GPT I got from GitHub. And so I, I remember back in 30 years ago, I used to sell something called Expert Systems. And Expert Systems were very interesting because you could ask them three Expert Systems the same question, you got three different answers which made none of them experts at all. Uh, so I thought, well, I would ask uh, both ChatGPT and uh, Bing with AI what there was to in Austin today. And I got two completely different answers. So if they're both the back end, they're obviously doing a certain amount of filtering or a certain amount of difference. I have to tell you that ChatGPT was the only one that actually pointed out that it wasn't a, it was a language model, not a real-time thing. So of course, both of them missed that it was South by Southwest. Um, in Austin today. So I, I asked them both the same question. I got different answers. I actually prefer the JGPT uh, interface. I, I seem to struggle with Microsoft browsers, the Microsoft UI, and it actually took me a long time in Edge to find where the AI stuff was. Are you using the pro uh, version of ChatGPT, Nigel, or are you struggling along with the uh, I'm struggling the, along the with pleb. the cheap, free version. <laughs> Yeah, I and I'm interested to know. I was using a little bit, and um, I I do kind of wonder how much of the uh, you know, the slower response times uh, for that are um, necessary for bandwidth, which could very well likely be, or just maybe a little incentive uh, what, to what would Pro become a subscriber. Me? What would Pro give me that I don't get from free other than speed? The speed is one thing. The other thing is. Uh, availability. So when ChatGPT gets uh, thick and in heavy usage, uh, they're not guaranteeing that their free users will have access to it uh, when you need it. So it could be slow in typing it out. I, I do recall I've I just used it recently. I just used it yesterday, and I was noting since the last time I had used it when before they had a, a premium plan, and it was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it, you know, it doesn't have the, the real impressive reaction speed. Um, I believe there was it's one other feature too. It's not a different model too. though, is it? It's not like one's five and one's three or something. It's just it's just a, a slightly slowed down service at this point. One of them is 3.5, the other's version four, Nigel. And then you also get much, much larger prompts and uh, both input and output, which makes a significant difference. Okay. Okay, thanks for that, John. Tony. Yeah, I'm using, I'm playing with Edge uh, AI, and I would encourage Paul to make sure that he not only has the Edge app on his computer, but he should also add it to uh, his mobile phone. It, they work together, and um, that is a, a use case that you definitely want to, to utilize. Dave? Yeah, it was my impression that... Um trouble with the AI support in Edge was causing people to play with it in the wrong way, and now it's li uh, limited to five inquiries. I'm not sure if that's still in place, but some weeks ago in February, it was limited to five after people started messing with it on Edge. And John? Yeah, and it's interesting to me, how many of the people on the panel who just said, yeah, I've been playing with Edge, 
would never have installed that Microsoft browser on their computer otherwise. Um, so I think it is an effective marketing technique, if nothing else. And in my experience, the Bing AI tool, I use that for research uh, because it more easily links to its sources. And then I use ChatGPT for generating new content, typically, because it does give you a little bit more flexibility and freedom. And I'm only on ChatGPT 3.5. I have not paid for the upgrade, but I can see definitely where there's been several times where like, man, I wish I could upload another thousand characters into my request. Yeah, you wonder um, the productivity tools that don't have AI assistance, I wonder if they're going to become <laughs> become extinct. Um, I haven't got a chance to use the the Bing search, but I wonder if all of the uh, people have extra extra uh, fingers if I use their image search. So I'll have to I'll have to check that out. Let's go to our next question. Uh, continuing on the generative text questions, can Dr. Clark share his latest thoughts on ChatGPT? And this comes from Tony Mobley. Dr. Clark, would you like to share? My latest thoughts uh, happened this morning, and it was, not surprisingly, it was a smart remark, which is, I haven't felt like I've run out of organic intelligence yet. So I'm still working on the, on the system I've been working with for 81 years, and uh, I'll get around to it, but I, I'm, I'm grateful to have all of these colleagues on office hours who have played around with various versions of various uh, AI systems. So I'm optimistic that um, the initial worry or hand-wringing that, um, that copywriters and educators perhaps engaged in at the rollout of chat GPT that, oh my goodness, our jobs are going to be gone or um, our students are going to cheat. I hope that's uh, settled down a bit and that um, people can think more affirmatively about uh, possible ways to use these tools as amplifiers of what we're already doing as teachers or or writers, uh, rather than as uh, a threat, because I don't really think um, the technology is at a point that it can really uh, replace the kinds of things that writers do, um, except for trivial tasks. Um, so that's my latest thought, that uh, I'm optimistic, but it's going to take a, a settling down period which we're in now, and some creative thinkers who say, well, we could, we could do this, we could do that, um, we can make it. It might even apply to the topic of our education hour that's starting in 15 minutes or so, which is how can we use uh, something like chat GPT to take the perspective of someone uh, with a, a learning challenge that we ourselves are not familiar with and be able to adjust and accommodate our uh, learning environment to meet their needs with chat GPT taking the point of view, so to speak, of the limitations and strengths of uh, differently able people than ourselves. So it, it can help get us out of our own 
uh, self-referential way of thinking about learners. I'll stop there. Thank you, Dr. Clark. Um, Tony, would you like to weigh in on what your quotient of uh, organic and artificial intelligence has been like? I just first want to say thank you, Dr. Clark, for your for your for your statements and comments. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am paying the twenty dollars uh, a month for the Chat GPT, and it's very interesting. And I think I shared an earlier conversation on the Education Hour that that I have actually put in um, some sermons topics in chat GBT. And it was interesting, the the responses that I got to the subject matter on these sermons that I put in, in chat GBT. I would I would tell anyone who who would would do that, definitely do not use that chat GPT as the sermon. Please do not use it as the sermon. And the only reason I, I say that is because what it gives you is sort of a baseline, sort of skeleton on the bones of a sermon. It does not have um, the, the theological or the meat or flesh of what you would want in a sermon. And so, but it is interesting. Um, it does give you some thoughts that you may not have thought about. It may give you some some um, perspective in terms of engagement with the congregation, but uh, please do not use it as, it is not there yet that you could actually use it as a sermon. But it is interesting in how it is uh, getting better, and it may be that I'm getting better with the prompts, but I would say still be very careful with how you use ChatGPT for um, uh, other activities. Dr. Clegg, uh, do you have more to add? One of the persistent problems of practice with houses of worship, uh, I believe, is that um, the sermons or the homilies uh, go too long. And ChatGPT might be a way to keep the time boundary or the word count boundary down to something that you decide in advance what would a what would a 14 minute sermon look like on this topic uh, and then that gives the uh, the leader the person who's going to be delivering the sermon a chance to say okay um, I'm, I might have to change the content enrich the content correct the content, but here's the box. Here's the the length of time that I want to hit. And um, that kind of a template, uh, I think, could be helpful in uh, addressing that persistent problem of practice. I think it's definitely helpful for blank page syndrome of starting out. Of course, you know, humans are going to do our human tweaking. Uh, Tony, want to weigh in? Absolutely. The, the, the blank page syndrome is definitely, a, it, it is a resource if that, if that is the position that you find yourself in. And I would also echo what Dr. Clark said in terms of the brevity of what 
the sermon that ChatGPT writes is a very brief and short sermon, gets to the point. Um, in, in the tradition that I come from, um, brevity is not always something that is um, in, looked at as a, a method of uh, driving home or telling the story. So I'll say it that way. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. After your formal education, what was the most important meeting, conference, video, or lecture, and you might even be office hours, that influenced the way you currently work? All right. We have a healthy uh, uh, panel weighing in on us. Let's start off with Laura. I think one of the very first things that has changed the way that I absolutely work with my students is um, coming across the coaching. Um, you hear about life coaches. I'm not talking athletic coaches, but more your life coaches, your um, neurolinguistic coaching, um, learning to ask those empowering questions, not asking why, but asking, you know, for what reason. Um, kind of gets you to the same place, but it creates a totally different reaction inside of your students. And uh, I'm not quite finished, not quite certified in this yet, but um, the end of the month, I do a seven, a seven day intensive. I finished the first four days of the intensive and uh, I'm excited to see what else I can learn. Let's go to Nigel and then maybe to John. So unlike many August people on this panel, I have a fairly poor formal education and uh, didn't get uh, too far through it. Um, so most of my education I've got by listening and reading, and I think the most powerful groups I've been involved in are peer groups. Maybe Office Hours is a good example of that. Um, my my other life is uh, has been a marketing life, and uh, I've been to a number of marketing organizations for peers, particularly Chief Marketing Officer, things called CMO Club and things like that. Now, one of those, I met a gentleman who has become one of my coaches, to follow on from what Laura said. And he introduced me to a way of thinking which I don't have enough time to describe because it's too complicated. I'll tell you there is quite a good book called The Three Laws of Performance. And uh, the he, I learned the three ways uh, of thinking that that book gives, um, and it fundamentally changed the way I do everything. So uh, occasionally you will meet on your journey a coach outside of academic world who make you rethink everything. Let's go to John and then to Dave. For me, I think the single most uh, influential uh, resource has been a free online course called the Foundations of Learning Experience Design, or Foundations of LXD by NovoEd. I require all my employees to go through it. It teaches you the basics of creating curricula for an organizational context. I'll put it in the chat. Good, Dave. Well, back in 1981, I had the chance to go to a place called Montreal to a conference called Convergence, and it was an attempt by people in all the different industries of media to try and look at the impact digital was going to have on everything. And it brought together filmmakers, major directors like uh, Stephen Frears, uh, Jean-Jacques Benix, uh, Robert Altman, and you got to talk to these people one-on-one. -on -one. I got to have lunch with John Lasseter at that conference. And also, you could see high-definition television brought from 
Japan. And you can see audio that was now being done digitally and the monster tape decks that were doing digital. And in 81, uh, it introduced me to the idea that all this was going to converge. And at some point, we were going to do almost everything digitally. And now we are living that reality. And Tony. Yeah, I, I want to lift up two, two situations for me. Um, as a new student, as an older new student at Morehouse College, I had the opportunity to interview Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was president of Morehouse College um, for 27 years, who was the president of Morehouse College when Martin Luther King was a student there, and he was an advisor to Dr. King in, in later years. And in that interview or conversation that I had with Dr. Mays, he impressed upon me the, the importance of never giving up on seeking knowledge, but not only seeking knowledge, but being able to put that knowledge once you've gleaned it into use. And the only other thing that has impacted me in that powerful kind of way is office hours from the standpoint that it continues to allow me to learn new things and I'm having the ability to put those things that I am learning into practice. So I say thank you to Dr. Mays and I say thank you to, to Office Hours. Fantastic. Well, thank you for um, all of those contributions and not one Simon Sinek uh, talk in there. So quite a bit of diversity. Uh, we just have a little bit um, more to go. Please vote on the questions. We may not get to all of them before the end of our show. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. What hardware do you use to get eight or more HDMI inputs into a PC for vMix or OBS? Jeffrey? There is a there there are a couple cards that you can get, but there's also a couple things that you have to be very concerned about with uh, installing these cards. Uh, the ones I use are the Decklink cards by Blackmagic. This is an SDI version of the card, and I have this outside my computer because the HDMI at one is actually sitting inside my computer. Uh, these uh, will run on a uh, usually a PCIe 3.0 with a 4x or 8x. Uh, the HDMI is 8x actually. I believe this is 4x uh, card, uh, and that brings me to the next problem, and that is your motherboard. Your motherboard might not be able to handle two of those cards because I don't think there are a couple cards that have SDI that are eight channel. I've seen them before. Uh, and uh, probably by AGA or something like that. Um, and But uh, they still need to have that PCIe installed in there. If you have a motherboard that can handle uh, a video card, which is usually a 16X, and then maybe one 8X, but it's also shared with like your NVMe, then you might not be able to install two cards. That's the problem I have with my computer. I put the first uh, card in and that's running at 8x. And then the second card I cannot install because I have NVMe installed into my uh, into my system. So you gotta watch the motherboard specs as well as the cards, but uh, I would highly recommend the Decklink ones. 
Thanks, Jeffrey. That's helpful. Um, another option you can have, of course, if you use one of the ATEM minis, you won't be able to create super sources between those individual camera feeds. Uh, but off, I know there's a few folks here in office hours that use that type of workflow where they're taking in an ATEM mini sources and then having the graphics or the lower thirds uh, on their output. Uh, another option that you can use is some cameras um, have both an HDMI feed and a USB feed. So that is a way, if you have uh, cameras that have those type of outputs, you could use those and some of your super sources with your software switcher. Uh, Jeffrey, more to add? Yeah, one more thing, and that is you can do HDMI to uh, NDI. I have a couple Majewell capture cards that uh, I use for older cameras. That way uh, you don't have to worry about the PCIe at all, and uh, I can get easily eight eight NDI uh, uh, inputs in there as long as they stay around 1080p. If you've got a more beefier computer, you could probably start doing 4K as well. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. YouTube TV has increased in price to 73 US a month. Considering that Google marketed it as an alternative to big cable, will the price increase probably drive customers back to cable or satellite territory? Go ahead, Harshi. I don't believe it will because they have a big differentiator, which is their DVR platform. Granted, cable and other platforms have DVR as well, but it's not well-versed such as Spectrums or anyone. So I think that the main differentiator here is their DVR servicing. And uh, people just want to watch the NFL and stuff, so they have more of a, uh, a stronghold on the, that market too. Jeffrey? Uh, yeah, so... YouTube did buy DirecTV service for NFL Sunday Ticket, which was a two was a two billion dollar yeah two billion dollar uh, uh, purchase. So that adds to the in, the price increase. Now, for those of you who don't care about sports, that's not going to help you too much. But uh, the other thing is the other big advantage, as opposed to let's say Spectrum or Cox or anything like that, is if you want to watch any TV outside of your home, you need to be either be on that that uh, provider or, uh, or or VPN into your machine because it will not, if you access the Spectrum app, for example, uh, at a hotel, you will not get the, all the channels that you want to watch, uh, very limited channels, whereas YouTube TV will give you a broader range. And Nigel? So I think to some extent the answer to this depends on the use case of the user and the device they're watching it on. And I think that for, for us who live in a laptop and a mobile and an iPad world, YouTube TV is a good way of getting a bundled set of services. Um, you could choose to unbundle yourself, which is mostly what we do. Uh, I don't know if it's any cheaper. It's just more convenient for us. But I'll tell you, there is still a lot of people at home who uh, find the uh, their major interface is a TV. They don't want to use an Apple TV. They want to use a cable box. They want to use a satellite system. They want to use a very easy UI. And there will always be, I think, a, an answer. And until YouTube TV or one of its equivalent is built into a TV in the same way that a simple cable service is, um, that will always be a function. I also think that the big promise of uh, cutting the cable was the unbundling that I could pick the channels that I wanted. And I think YouTube, to some extent, YouTube TV at least, is a proof that that's, that model isn't going to work. That if you assemble 
all those uh, particular channels in the bundle you want, it will have been cheaper to buy a cable bundle. Some uh, We all need cable, we all need a way of getting uh, internet into our homes. I mean, obviously you can use satellite or some other way. I, I think we may find that, that the balance is not going to be quite as broad towards the uh, those over-the-top services for people who just watch Simple TV. Next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, I had a long essay that I wanted to give chat GPT open AI to rewrite in the style of John Steinbeck or Kurt Vonnegut, but it would only produce a couple of large paragraphs. How do I get it to rewrite the entire essay and stick to the facts? John? Remember that chat GPT has um, limitations on its character prompts, especially the free version, version 3.5. And before you start that project, break the text into smaller snippets. Um, ask ChatGPT to become that voice of that actor and rewrite using that particular style and give it one chunk at a time. If it ever goes astray, ask it to rewrite it. If it makes stuff up, ask it to change what it made up. Um, you need more smaller specific prompts. And then the real big trick with ChatGPT 3.5 especially is after about five prompts, it starts kind of getting a circular logic built into it in my experience. And so you might want to start a new conversation at that point. And then you'll have to copy, cut, copy and paste all that stuff together into one single database. But most problems in ChatGPT version 3.5 can be resolved with better prompt engineering. And Jeffrey. I totally agree. There's also a level of copyright that we have to, uh, that ChatGPT has to watch out for because it hasn't, we haven't been dinged on it yet. I'm, just, I'm assuming there's going to be uh, if it already hasn't happened, some article where that's completely debunked because they found out that they wrote it all on ChatGPT and didn't do any type of post-editing or anything like that. For your stuff, it sounds like it's original, so it's not a big deal, but uh, but you start getting into somebody else's voice, and then that could start becoming a big deal. So uh, I, like, uh, I like what John suggested for his answer. Well, thank you for our panel, uh, for our first hour, and our producers for our first hour questions, but don't go anywhere. We're going to move right into our education hour topic. Uh, before we do, I'd just like to let uh, people know that we have uh, an exciting topic, uh, some, some exciting topics for next week. We have three notable guests. On Monday, we have Julie Riley that's going to be talking to us about StreamYard. Also, Michael uh, Santucci of uh, Sensophonics. We'll talk about hearing conservations on our audio day. And Matthew Samiglia of Altion.io. We can look forward to on Friday. Also, we're doing analyzing video interviews on our video day and visual effects breakdown on Tuesday. So a packed, uh, a packed schedule to look forward to. If you'd like to uh, volunteer uh, on the crew, either on the team that uh, is producing our show live or helping out to for the office hours broader community look at our uh, daily website there's uh, a heading under the team opportunities uh, where you can join uh, join the team with that we'll go into our education hour uh, john what do we have Thanks, Josh. Today we have Laura Thompson with us here on the panel. Usually she's on the back end. We're going to be focusing on universal design in learning. We might also reference it as UDL. Laura is an academic advisor and an accessibility advocate. And the interesting thing when we think about UDL is that uh, most of the time when we think about improving accessibility, that's not the main point of UDL. Traditionally, accessibility is an afterthought. It's considering how to take what's currently existing infrastructure and make that available to people who traditionally can't use it for some reason or another. 
On the other hand, UDL focuses on our learners, especially at the beginning. It's a framework that asks, what if we build the learning material to be accessible by the most people from the start? It asks the designer to remove, remove barriers and create scaffolds, which allow our learners to more easily engage with the material. In other words, instead of learner variety being the problem, the learning environment is the problem to solve. So as always, we want to invite our panelists, uh, excuse me, our producers to guide the show, ask questions that will be helpful in, in aiding your understanding of UDL. And while you consider what your questions are, we'll start with our panel discussion. So Dave, if you want to open us up with our first question. Well, uh, the first question comes from Laura Thompson herself, and it's to ask us to think about this topic. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear universal design for learning? Go ahead, Dave. Well, for me, and I've been concerned about um, uh, assistive technologies way back in the day, and I've been concerned when web came out that it have uh, assistance in there as well. And I wonder if um, having a better learning environment starts with just the sensitivity of our society toward the need for this, that um, we've only, I think in my lifetime, begun to accept that a person may have some challenges to learning, but that doesn't mean they should be excluded as they used to be or separated. So universal design has to accommodate all different kinds of uh, learning situations, uh, learning subjects, and challenges for very sophisticated training. So uh, in the sense that I've, I've tried to focus on that myself and tried to teach other web designers and all the rest to, uh, to include all of the extra features that are there for uh, readers, the, the readers for blind people and that sort of thing, uh, and for email to be more uh, accessible and functional uh, for people who are not using a mouse. Um, I think in a learning environment, there are some adjustments that can be made and not just in the way of uh, being able to have uh, accommodate students and their needs, but also accommodate the instructors to be able to uh, seamlessly move between each of the uh, learning groups. Thank you, Dr. Clark. To answer Laura's question directly, I th two things come to mind immediately when I hear universal design for learning. One is individual differences, and the other is perspective taking. So the individual differences part uh, is not concentrated only on uh, learning challenges or deficits, but it's also uh, possibly accommodating for uh, learners who are smarter than I am or faster than I am or um, able to um, add, bring a lot to the table in terms of this subject matter. So what is their background knowledge? What is their um, approach to learning? How does it fit or clash with, with what I have uh, first draft planned? And the uh, perspective taking question is really a, a mental planning exercise or replanning or redesign exercise in which I would try to take the point of view of a person who's different than myself. I think without conscious attention to universal design for learning, um, we tend to think, our teachers more generally, are tempted to think that, well, 
these learners are sort of like I was when I was their age. So I'm going to design an instructional experience and environment that uh, would have served me well when I was 19 years old or 12 years old or whatever the whatever the uh, average age group is of your audience and uh, and I think that's that can lead to overlooking people who are different than I was and and uh, different than the teacher was so uh, this exercise of deliberately taking the perspective of each learner to the extent that you know about that in advance um, can enrich access to um, to the kind of learning and application that you're hoping for. And when I think about uh, UDL, I, it strikes me as a, an interesting challenge to try to start with um, a broader audience than to start with the content. And it seems easier to start with the content and customize based on who you have that class. And UDL is asking instead to say, how do we start with a broad scope so that any any given level of abilities could join in and achieve the same kinds of results um, given a specific lesson plan? But Laura, what, uh, how would you guide us in our conversation of UDL? Good morning. Thank you. Um, one of the things I really want to start with is the, they talk about the myth of average. And um, there's a TEDx talk about it that I dropped into the panel chat. And I'd ask if the back end could just move that over to the other chat. Um, we're going to look at... Um, universal design from three, there's three pieces and I'm going to get the slide ready here. I'm kind of doing this a little different order than I intended to do it, but um, let me, I'm going to attempt to share my screen for a moment. Okay. So um, if you're looking at this, you can see that universal design really has three components to it. It has the the um, the why of learning, which is your effective networks, the what of learning, and the how of learning. And I love this slide because it kind of shows that each of these really does affect a different part of your brain. You know, multiple means of expression, multiple means of, and we will see in, I think it's the next slide. And it's not going to let you do that. Okay. Um, but it it's really a matter of giving multiple means of getting the information in and getting the information out. Equitable opportunities provide multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation, and multiple means of action and expression. And each of those is tied to a different key part of the brain. Laura, can you um, walk us through maybe for those of us who don't have as much um, vocabulary understanding, when we say engagement, what, are, what do we mean by engagement? Yes. Um, let me get to my notes. I've kind of got my notes in a different order than I anticipated them being. 
But engagement is really how they take the information in. Um, and, you know, are they hearing it? Are they seeing it? Are they able to physically move? So it's kind of um, what is, is that more of, or less what the learner's doing with the content it's while it's, it's happening? Yeah, it's more of how they're getting the content. Engagement's how they're getting the content. Basically, input, synthesis, and output. And you want to be able to do that on multiple levels at each step. Um, there's a little graphic here I want to show that is going to kind of take us to our um, the, the kind of the meat of what I want to get to today. And I've lost screens. Sorry. I'm probably driving the back end absolutely nuts. But um, looking at this, this is a, um, it talks about students will write a descriptive essay about Greek mythology. And then if you, for UDL, we would say students will demonstrate knowledge about Greek mythology. The first example kind of shows we want them to write, we're telling them what they're going to write, what style they're going to write in, and it gives you this narrow box. You're putting every student into this little box with a broader um, learning objective. It gives you a much more demonstrate knowledge. There's, there's, there's a, you can define that very differently. And uh it really comes down to kind of looking at, um, I, you know, starting from your learning objectives, really, um, in more in more ways than one, you're really starting from that learning objective, and um, moving from things like move from students will read to students will, you know, synthesize or take in the in, um, yeah, moving from words like read, listen, write, speak to take in information, express information, demonstrate an understanding of, demonstrate an understanding of concepts and ideas, showing what they know through personally accessible formats. And it really comes down to giving your students a little bit more flexibility. I do like that YouTube video that, that was posted from TEDx about the myth of average. It talks about in there, the example, the first example he uses is how they designed fighter jet pilot cockpits and the original design of them and how it excluded 80% of the available pool of people to become fighter jet pilots because they had to be able to fit into this one box. And so taking that same principle with our lesson plans, especially your example of the objectives, it's moving from a specific objective, like the learner will pass this particular test with this percentage rate, to the learner will demonstrate an understanding of these concepts uh, by maybe something more open, like creating a uh, model that of something. <laughs> and they could create exactly. writing or reading or presenting or um, acting, whatever modality exactly. works best for the learner we're giving them flexibility and options instead of trying to force them through a smaller pipe exactly and it's it really it's about the way that this udl has a structure and um 
we we could I could spend six hours just going over all of the pieces because it is a standard. But to what I really wanted this conversation to do was kind of focus on how we can be a little bit more broad and general when writing learning objectives and just thinking about how we set up our classrooms and just kind of start that discussion. And how much, Laura, do you think uh, teachers or instructors, when giving that flexibility, and maybe it depends a little bit on age, how much should they prescribe options? Like, here's five options you can choose from versus all the options in the world. Because I feel like some, for some people to be given all the options in the world uh, could paralyze them with choice. So do you have any suggestions on the you know, guidance in that area? First, start, first, start with age appropriate. Um, I think it's always good to give three to five options, but also to be open, you know, letting your students know, you know, this isn't the only five options. If you have a solidly, you know, once they get to middle elementary to upper elementary and on, if you have a solid, if you can give me a solid reason why you want to do it the way you want to do it, I'm open to having that discussion with you. Um, because spark the creativity and, uh, you know, invite the learners to engage in the process. Great. Um, and then with our opening question, we asked uh, what comes first to mind. Harshid, was there something you wanted to share what comes first to mind when you think of universal design? Absolutely. So when I think of universal design, um, I'm also thinking of the, the global aspect of things. So people come from different uh, learning abilities as well <clears throat> as maybe uh, cognition uh, abilities as far as even vision, right? So vision does offer your brain to be used where if there's so much clutter on, let's say, a web page or a, even a textbook, it, how you reach someone is going to matter on how you develop, a, I think, a pattern of, of putting things together. Um, what I've seen lately is websites using an alternative to make uh, access available and saying that that's a you know universal design way of doing things, but it's really not where... The way if you might go to a website that you might look for something that says home or contact us, those are labels that are all familiar to us because we know what information we want. So if you're trying to look for their phone number, we might go to contact us. And it's that cognition that works, I think, uh, you know, unknowingly. And when we come to the learning aspects of how we deal with it, with even teaching our children or our employees and whatnot, it's always important to think that how will everybody learn rather than, hey, uh, you know, I got that, that dude Hirsch over there, he's blind, uh, what are we going to do with him? Uh, how are we going to do this? Uh, so we, we want to make sure we don't, you know, isolate people that way, because that's what the whole idea of UDL is, is to give people their own approach to learning their way and how that might, uh, you know, impact them to, to gain the same knowledge as anybody else next to them. I think it's a really interesting point that sometimes our accommodations for individuals uh, cause them to stick out and be disengaged. It's sort of like if you've ever been at a grocery store that has a, a handicapped parking space, but in order to get from the handicapped parking space into the store, you have to walk through other parking spaces and, and put the person in danger, basically. It maybe fits in with the code, but it's not helpful to the people. So um, it's an interesting uh, perspective. Thanks, Harshit. Dave, did you have something else to add? It occurred to me while listening to what Laura was talking about that the, 
these benefits that we're asking to to include in the process of of learning and teaching uh, benefit everybody, not just those who are challenged. And I, I think if I had had, I mean, in my early school years, which are a long time ago, uh, it was all about books and reading and lecturing to the class. I would have probably benefited if I had more options on how to acquire the information, interact with the information, and uh, find my own way through it than if I just had to sit in the back row and hope to keep up. And and all the changes we're talking about, creating a more stimulating environment in other channels, and having more outputs that, that are optional to you rather than simply writing your response or regurgitating in a, in a short speech, um, would benefit me as as a considerable able-bodied person. So I think you know we're we're looking at the classroom as an environment more so now than we ever did before as an environment for response as well as just input. And I think uh, you know that the whole social interaction is another layer, uh, allowing opportunities for interpersonal interactions between students to learn in groups and things. But I, I really think if we had a universal design for learning mandate, uh, then classrooms would probably find themselves more open to everybody, not just trying to accommodate uh, other groups. Um, one other thing that came to me when I first saw learning design in the um, the newsletter uh, that comes out for office hours was whether or not this was a regulatory environment that was going to uh, impose something on how teaching happens. And I just wanted to clear, get clarification there if this is not just a sort of regulatory structure, but just a, an ethic or a, a change of culture. Yeah, Laura, do you know I, the answer, I, Dave? I definitely agree with you. It's it's not just a regulatory. It's it's meant to be a, a you know kind of that culture shift and the attempt to shift the culture. It's um, been written into a lot of the regulations, but it's it's really more from that. Um, in the United States, when the in, the IDEA was passed in the late 80s and implemented in around 90 with the ADA and all of that, mm -hmm. they started talking about least restrictive environment for learning. Yeah. And that was when this conversation started happening. Right. Um, these guidelines. Go ahead. I, I got to work on a, a major project, uh, which involved people from all different countries. And we had to develop a fuzzy logic for answering questions on the exams. These are very serious exams. They're life and death things. And you would first teach it with accuracy. You wanted to see them spell everything correctly. But many of the people were from a different language. They came from Turkey, France, Italy, Germany. And they weren't English speakers to begin with. And therefore, mm -hmm. their answer of how you spell aileron might be different in each country. So we had to have a fuzzy logic for the test result checking to make sure that even if they spelled it slightly wrong, we knew that was derivative from the Italian or from the Turkish. And then they would be marked as having correctly answered and not faulted for not having it written properly. And I think in a sense, the fuzzy logic concept fits to uh, widening the design of classrooms and instructional environments, whether or not they're digitally delivered or in person, to to spread that out and and give more latitude for people to not not necessarily fail because they hadn't been specific in my particular case, but 
but they failed because they didn't participate enough or something like that, as we see in the corporate culture. All right. Well, uh, this is universal design, and we're going to be discussing this. And part of universal design, like we said, is giving flexibility to the learners to find their own way to the same end goal. And so producers, we're asking you to guide us in the way we're going towards your goal here today by putting your questions into Mukana. You can vote up the questions you'd like us to discuss first, as well as put in any new questions you have uh, there in the little text field. What's our next question, Dave? Well, our next one is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What does UDL look like inside the classroom? Maybe describe that for us. Dr. Clark? One piece of what it looks like is it looks like the designer or the instructor recognizes that every learner is going to learn something different from the other learners, from what seems to be the same, in quotes, um, experience. Our, our system for uh, designing learning experiences is often driven by the, the idea that everyone in the learning group should be driving toward the same learning goal and that they will probably reach that goal to different degrees that will probably be distributed on a bell curve. But I think a lot of that funnel thinking is a trap because what actually happens is that different learners uh, incorporate different ideas, skills, um, degrees of understanding and interest and engagement from the so-called same experience. So um, I'm an advocate of an, a divergent model rather than a convergent model of um, learning and experience. And um, a, a UDL organized classroom to me would would have made that uh, very clear to everyone involved that we're here to learn different things, not, uh, and you will, we guarantee that you'll learn different things from one another. And we're going to um, self-evaluate what you've learned based on your report because your learning is invisible. And, and so that kind of an ethos of it's, it's not only okay, it's inevitable. That, that different learners will take, take away or in, internalize different learnings from the same experience will be uh, a visible part of the ethos of that uh, classroom. And Laura. Yes. Um, I, one of the thing, first things I will say is that I am absolutely an advocate of the flipped classroom. And I do believe that the flipped classroom lends itself very nicely to UDL. You're giving the learners information ahead of time, um, hopefully multimodally, you know, auditory text, videos, and you're letting them come back with what questions they have and discussing it. And it also gives you a very easy version um, for self-expression, letting them express it differently as we've already kind of talked about. 
I think one of the things you might see in a classroom that heavily uses the UDL approach is students not doing the same thing as each other because uh, you're providing multiple pathways for them to uh, go on their learning journeys. What's our next question, Dave? It's from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. He's asking, how do you overcome the limitations for the blind of screens on iPhones and Android phones? If I can't see my screens, I'm lost on my phones, except for Hey Siri or Hey Google. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, I use Google a lot. Um, there's a lot of things and it, people are they're surprised. I can talk to my assistant when I'm talking to my assistant and she's she's pretty good. <coughs> oh, excuse me. But when I I can also talk about Google in general and not set off my assistant. Um I've spent years working with it and there are things like TalkBack. Um be my eyes, um, Ira. So there are different ways. The, the smartphone is probably one of the best accessibility for low vision that have come along in a long time. Um, video magnifiers were predate uh, smartphones by a little bit, but you always now have, you don't have to remember to take this extra thing with you. You almost always have your phone around and um, pinch and zoom is amazing. There are some settings inside of the Android that you can get um, into as well to kind of uh, make those fonts bigger. And, uh, but yeah, I, I encourage you to, to uh, look into and uh, learn talk back if all, all else fails. Harshid, how do you overcome the limitations? So there's a couple different ways, but first things first is to deal with it, right? So you might go through grief and you might say, why do I have to do it this way and that way? And I can't see this or I can't see that. And if you identify what you can't see, uh, being that these accessibility tools are on your smartphones now is a result of universal design. Um, the being that that you have low vision, you have magnification. So that's one way of you could get around to do the same thing with that uh, attribute. A screen reader, again, same information is on that website or piece of paper that might be or wherever, and you're trying to gain that same access of that information. So these aspects of what is available on your phones, what is available on your uh, TVs and such are great. But if it comes to your blind, I think the first thing is to understand what do you need to overcome. So learning your screen reader is absolutely uh, a key point. Uh, with Android, we use TalkBack. With VoiceOver is on Apple. And they work pretty much the same way. You just have to understand what do they mean. So if you're trying to understand words by words or character by character or sentences by sentences or you're trying to navigate to a link, these aspects of our brain functioning to go to, hey, I want to go click on that link because they say join the meeting by clicking here. How do you get there? And the whole universal design takes you through that process of, okay, let's get you there with a screen reader. And there's always tutorials and a lot of help. I also host an Android show. So I always try to grab information from the community because we always learn from each other. So that's the best uh, method to use. In the spirit of universal design, we're always trying to think, how do I fix the environment instead of trying to fix the student? And if you're asking the question, how do I overcome limitations uh, for 
for people who, when they need to be on the screens, my question would be, do your learners need to be on the screens or is there a different mode you can offer people who might be visually impaired? And, and that is the first question I would ask. Maybe you can have them listen to a podcast with the same content or uh, provide them some other resource that isn't as visual. And if you can, if you have to do it through visual media, because, for example, you're training someone remotely via Microsoft Teams, then you can start asking the person-specific questions of how to incorporate this person. And you should have already, at this point, designed your learning materials using accessibility standards. One of the big things I see in my work is we have a knowledge base that our schedulers use to schedule appointments that's written in HTML. It's basically just an intranet site. And when people don't use the web standards to format the page with H1s and H2s and they just make the font big here, it's harder for people who have accessibility needs to be able to read them. So using those standards, they're standards for a reason. And part of that reason is so people who need to use tools to access them can. And so I think those are some things I would guide people on if they were asking uh, a particular situation in my context. Uh, go ahead, Laura. One other thing I did want to um, kind of comment on is I find from the other side is that I tend to give people visuals as I'm explaining things more because I've got a concept of what I'm saying and it makes sense to me, but I've learned over the years that I have spoken, taught in classrooms, that the wall of information that is coming out of my, with my voice and my mouth is not always translating into what others are picking up. Um, although I pick a lot of things up by hearing it, I've, I've really gone to, um, I used to hate, I used to be the anti-PowerPoint slide person. But I've discovered that as my brain assimilates the information that's coming out my mouth, that those around me need to get it in that visual media. A lot of people are visual first, or they need something to at least track by. And so I've had to learn to create slides for those who can see them. And it was a it was a huge kind of uh, aha moment for me. And there is uh, actually an add-in for PowerPoint for anyone who's interested. Uh, it's the Bright Carbon add-in, and it can actually tell you the contrast ratio of your slide, which is one of the most important things when sharing uh, visual slides with people to make sure they're able to view what you're trying to get them to see. Uh, next question. From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, if we allow more autonomous learning inside the classroom, how does this change the traditional grading models? Go ahead, Chris. There are a couple of ways that come to mind. I'm sure there are more, but um, one is that um, in in classrooms, in class situations or courses that I use, in which I use uh, autonomous learning, I, I go to a lot of effort to uh, create a learning community. And part of the quality of a learning community is that it's collaborative rather than competitive. So in a traditional experience that many of us came up through, um, we're all competing for the, the top grade uh, on, a, on a single scale, some um, final project or 
examination. And it, but in a learning community, it's more like the uh, outward bound model, where each member of the community is helping all the other members of the community get the most out of the experience, different as they may be. The second uh, change would be to uh, make the basis for evaluation be how much each individual learner has changed from the beginning of the course to the end, rather than um, how much of a, a, a fixed or predefined uh, body of knowledge or demonstration of skill um, they've hit on the on the bell curve, so to speak. So it's I'm I'm responsible for learning more, being able to do more than I was able to do before I took the course. Um, that's the that's the uh, baseline against which my my uh, achievement will be judged is where I started, not where uh, arbitrarily uh, someone ag agreed that sixth grade reading level would allow me to move ahead a certain amount. Um, Dr. Clark, I think um, grading for evaluating for growth is a really valuable goal. How do you think that interacts in our current world of standardized testing? It doesn't match at all. And, and many of the problems and uh, complaints about standardized testing and the, the extreme uh, unhappy uh, accommodation of the standardized testing re regimes called teaching to the test uh, simply don't work. They create greater problems rather than solving the problem of uh, everybody will eventually be above average. Uh, that's absurd, but many, many teachers have been uh, trapped or bullied into thinking that the only way to get everybody above average is to teach to the test. And that that's the opposite of, of my advocacy of the a divergent learning model where we're crediting people, learners with um, what they have learned, which would be different than everybody else in the system. So I, I think I cut you off if you wanted to continue oh, your original thought as well. I apologize for that. No, no, no. Original thought is long gone. <laughs> I'll right. stop. Th I'll stop there. <laughs> and not only is uh, trying to get everyone above average absurd, it's mathematically impossible. Uh, but Laura, did you have something to add? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I want to kind of go back to is the comment that I made at the beginning about you change the grading by changing the objective. And when you broaden those objectives, then you move the, you know, the standard percentile grades may not be the most effective way to to uh, connect with your um, students, audience. It is more about, as Dr. Clark said, that change over time in the individual learner versus the competitive. And Tony. I was kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, I was kind of struggling with this from the standpoint of looking at it from an IEP perspective in that the, the measure 
in the IEP or the grading in the IEP is more about the success of what actually occurs in the IEP more so than the actual letter grade. And I, I think that in part we have to kind of look at it from the perspective and, uh, uh, I apologize if you guys don't follow the thought, but the the mother who has seven, seven children and each and every one of the seven children has a different perspective. The mother does not evaluate all seven children by the same standards. She provides for each and every child what their particular need is. And I think that when it comes to the learning process, that there has to be room. I understand that there is a standard and the standard has to be met. But at the same time, we must be able to give the individuals, the things that they need so that everyone can pull the wagon to the extent that it needs to be pulled. Thanks, Tony. And Laura? Tony, I totally agree with you. And um, what I would say in response to what you just said is universal design starts before it, it gives you the broadest range to make a teacher's individual customizations maybe less of a lift for the individual teacher. And also, I want everybody to keep in mind when we're talking about universal design, we're talking about curriculum delivery. Um, instead of there's there's a quote in the in in my notes that says it's talking about fixing the environment and the curriculum versus fixing the student. This is not the same as the um web the web content accessibility standards. It's not necessarily the tools. It's really about the delivery of the content. Um, so it's kind of giving everybody an even, it's it, just another piece of how we level the playing field that's kind of specific to education. And I think in, in Lars Nosa said, it's it's a framework, not a technique. Um, so it's every, the thing that everything else is structured upon. And for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the American schooling system, an IEP is an individual education plan. Students with special needs are often put on an IEP to measure their success rather than against the standards uh, otherwise common to American schools. Uh, what, uh, for those of you who are watching, remember you can put your questions back into Mukana if you have additional areas you'd like us to cover or vote up those questions that you want to hear more about. What's our next question? Our next one is from Michael Smith in Silverado, California. How does UDL differ from traditional teaching methods? Laura? UDL is really a complement for traditional teaching methods. It's, it takes the traditional ABCs, one, two, threes, and makes them more broader and accessible to different ways 
different the way different brains process information auditory vision um we talk, we used to talk a lot about the VARK or the VARK in education um are you a visual learner are you an auditory learner the R stood for read and write and K was kinesthetic they've gotten largely away from that in our education system but we still all default to one of them um first and it all and it always boils down to often to into the weeds of other things I'm learning, but but feelings drive the human being. And it always it it always ends in a sensation. Whatever that, whatever that string is for you, whether it, you know, your auditory first, visual first, it always ends in a sensation that creates a response. Um but yeah, so I really I look at this as a piece of traditional learning. Um, I wish it was more looked at and talked about. Sometimes we just, to Dr. Clark's point of teaching to the test, we lose the how because we're so focused on the what. And Dave. Yeah, I've been fortunate in, in the last 40 years to be able to go into the classroom on a regular basis at all grade levels. Uh, mostly because I was shooting the what was going on in the classroom. And I don't think we're doing traditional teaching anymore, and I don't see it as much in the last 15 or 20 years. Everybody is adapting uh, to a new reality and to their circumstances with uh, integration of special needs students into the regular schools. Uh, also accommodating the teachers are working very closely with parents as much as possible. The curriculums are being revised. Well, in our jurisdiction here, every 10 years, they get completely reviewed uh, for many of the same things we're talking about today, for accommodating, for being able to update the information, uh, but as well to modify what, sh what is appropriate to be studying at this time. And at the higher end, of course, uh, the colleges and universities are making uh, great strides at being able to have alternative sources and methods because it's a more individualized approach at that you know adult level. Uh, in terms of corporations, uh, I'm seeing quite a few who are using automated methods of standardized training, which are are simply interacting with a prearranged set of testing and and uh, inputting and, and and reading assignments. Uh, mostly for certification purposes and being able to work in a standardized work environment for safety purposes and, and effectiveness in, in uh, delivering your work. So I, I guess my, my response to traditional teaching methods, it doesn't very much uh, change the traditional approach because we don't use the chalk and talk thing much anymore. Thank you all. Uh, Dr. Clark. One possibly final comment. Um, historically, the Education Hour panelists and experts and guests have um, been advocates of what's called uh, project-based or problem-based learning, um, where in which um, the ideas or skills are applied during the experience of a course or a course of study. That is, you actually take ideas and principles uh, and try to create something uh, 
whether individually or in a in a small team. And I think that um, project-based learning is sort of invites a more universal design uh, mentality about how you organize the projects and how you organize the teams and how you evaluate uh, participation and the the projects and so forth. So uh, it's it's not the case that uh, universal design is a kind of a template that you lay over traditional instruction and try to fix traditional teaching methods. Um, the stereotype of what we call traditional teaching methods isn't isn't very good, isn't very effective. Um, and as as Dave said, uh, it's it's a van it's a vanishing species, I think. Um, but on the positive side, if you want to move toward um, project-based or problem-based learning, uh, then I think sort of necessarily you're also going to be looking at different uh, abilities and styles of learning and ways of uh, interacting with one another as well as with the big ideas of the, of the curriculum uh, in an applied setting in a way that shows depth of understanding or creates additional depth of understanding when you're actually trying to do something. It does seem that UDL fits in well with a lot of the themes we talk about in office hours, including that project-based learning. What's our next question? It's from Harshid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida. Laura, are we participating in UDL right now with having this presentation? Go ahead, Laura. Yes. Um, like I said earlier, one of the things I try to do, and I didn't do as well today as I could have, is describe what I'm talking about. As I and with the presentation with the slides, I use them to support what I'm speaking about, not to um, to not to not necessarily to. You can get the same information from listening to me as you can from seeing the slides. Sometimes less from seeing the slide is what you can from hearing what I'm saying. I I try never to. Um, provide information in one media that isn't in the other. And I'm a little bit worse with that with my slides. And Laura, would you say the open-endedness and how we have the producers asking the questions is uh, similar to different than UDL? It's, it's, a it's, it's a component of UDL because you're allowing your learners and those listening to get clarification on what they don't maybe understand or what they're most interested in. Great. What's our next question? It comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. How does universal design deal with password management and other stress points of interfacing with technology? Laura? Again, um, I, I put this on the category of not, this is not necessarily universal design. Like, like I said, universal design focuses more on curriculum and environment than it does on the actual, it's not necessarily a technology thing. Technology can be one piece of it, but universal design does not necessarily address the technology. All right, next question. And here's Michael Smith from Silverado, California. How can UDL be implemented in the classroom? 
Laura? The cancer is think about the four that I talked about earlier, the visual, the auditory, the kinesthetic, and the rewrite. Um, give give the, the information that you're sending out, give it in multiple um, venues, you know, pictures, words, audio, audios. And then uh, when you, when you're asking your students to represent their understanding of it, use broad strokes in your learning objectives. We could spend three weeks just on how to write learning objectives and um, think very broadly about how to, how your students give that learning, that understanding back to you. Do they do, do they, do they do it as a play? Do they write a paper? Do they shut, do they shoot you a video? Do they animate something? Do they draw it? Um, Do they have a conversation with you about, do they give a speech? Don't pigeonhole them into one means of expression. And I think what you're saying, Laura, is when you're selecting learning activities after you've gotten the objectives, especially, make sure you have at least several options that have different senses and um, cognitive skills involved. Sounds like to me. And and also, uh, I just lost it, but allow for as much as time allows. And I know in K through 12 and in higher ed, sometimes it's not possible, but does this student have a little bit more of a like stage fright type situation, would they prefer to video and send in their submission versus you've got one that's a little bit more extroverted and they need that feedback from the audience? Do they want to do their speech or their demonstration live in front of the audience during class time? Um, Even just those types of things can be very, can, can uh, lead to a more universally designed classroom. And what's our next question? From Jack Ripple in Breckenridge, Colorado, an opinion of escape room as teaching tool, gamification of STEM. Dr. Clark? First of all, your students would never forget it, so that's a, that's a positive. Um, I think escape room is a, is a great possibility for uh, an exercise to be done at the beginning of a course of study and then at the end of a course of study with different subsets of students uh, working together to escape. And then I had the ironic thought that maybe schooling, mandatory schooling is a 12 year long escape room challenge and the students who graduate have escaped. Laura. Um, Again, I, the escape room could be one piece of it, but if you're having every student go through the same escape room and the there's only one way to complete the escape room and actually escape, then it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about here. Um, but I think an escape room is a great place to think about, well, do, does the lock only unlock with the key that's hidden over there versus is there a lock with a key, a lock with a code, and a lock that you have to solve a puzzle to get past this level? Um, so I hope I'm, I'm giving you a little bit more to – I hope I'm – the actual escape room isn't the issue. Again, it would be the design of the escape room. 
Laura, would a having it, the fact that you have multiple learners in there who have different abilities, um, who so there maybe is one person who could solve that part of the problem in that particular mode, does that satisfy the needs of UDL since it's collaborative? That's an interesting question. I haven't looked into the collaboration side of UDL. Um, there, there's layers upon layers upon layers with UDL. Um, I will have to do some research on that. It's it's a possibility, but at the same point in time, again, you know, you, you deal with extroverts versus introverts, and they may not, the student may not be comfortable asking for that collaborative help. So, um, giving multiple options. Right. And Dave. I think of escape rooms as some of the worst workshops I've ever been in. So, um, you know, getting through all of the pre-planned exercises that seem to have no point whatsoever, to sit through their inevitable slideshows, and then to break into groups with people that seem not to have grasped what this workshop is about. So I've been in, a, in an escape room, and uh, I found the time pressure to be the most difficult part is that you have to escape in a certain period of time. And I don't think school is conducive to, except for, of course, classroom change times, it's not conducive to pressuring students into learning. I think uh, the Japanese learned a long time ago, uh, and the Koreans as well. You can't pressure students into learning. It just doesn't go. Thanks, Dave. Next question. Eric Billings of Washington, D.C. joins us with a question about, in a UDL system, what metric is used to measure the success of the training? Is it the same metric for everyone, and would it provide a ranking of the students? Go ahead, Laura. You can do this different ways because we know that in the United States we have an outcome-based education. But... Um, I don't think it has to be the same for everyone. That's kind of the whole behind UDL. And again, you're you're changing the way you think about your outcomes and those objectives that you write. You're taking it from, you know, student will be able to write back to our uh, uh, example on Greek mythology. Student will write a descriptive essay about, Greek mythology to student will demonstrate an understanding of the knowledge of Greek mythology. And when I'm thinking, when I hear the word training, I'm thinking of corporate training. Typically there you have objectives that the learner will be able to perform a task. And the UDL aspect is giving different ways for the people to learn how to complete that task within standards. What's our next question? Our next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Do you think that return to office mandates in the professional world are an example of the non-universally designed workplace? Yes. Thanks, Laura. How so? Because there are, um, they're just a, Again, it's that it's that square peg, you know, square peg, square hole where, um, you know, in your own home, you have access to, you know, different things that make, you know, you, you're more comfortable in your own environment. Sometimes I get that you need people into the office sometimes for meetings and yada, yada. But I but the flexible I still think that the pandemic showed us one thing. It's that flexibility is key in office settings. And Dave? Well, I think 
it's exactly right what Laura said because there are many reasons why people don't want to return to the office, and many of them have no educational component at all. It has to do with public health. So I think, in a sense, uh, we're looking at return to offices as a, a different thing here, and and it doesn't really apply to education so much. Tony. I do happen to know that in the state of Georgia, there have been some some changes in terms of the way in which trainers are able to um, travel has become almost non-existent and they're moving to a more consistent uh, mobile or digital um, expression in terms of doing training. And there are a lot of different reasons, but as already stated, the pandemic has definitely shared that there there's more than one way to, to get the job done. And so that's something that we need to look at. And what's our final question, Dave? It comes from, um, sorry about that. It comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. He's asking, Tony mentioned individual customization. Is this a place where technologies must be used to augment the teacher's capabilities in order to achieve this customization? Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, real quickly. Uh, the, I, the IEP is an individual plan that's put together for the student, and it is the, the educators and the parents and whatever support uh, personnel that are available to support the IEP. And the technologies that are used in that are those that are designed to help the students succeed. And there's a lot more to it, but... That's essentially what it's about, providing a, a, a vehicle for the students to have success. And since we're talking about the design stage, uh, technology is not necessarily required, though technology can facilitate uh, universal design. That's, th that's it for our show today. I want to say thank you, especially Laura, for joining our panel and lending your expertise, as well as our other panelists. Each week, you take a morning out of your week to help us learn about learning, and we're grateful for your time. Thank you, producers, for helping create a great show. Without your input and questions, Office Hours doesn't exist. And finally, to our crew, it takes a lot of people every day, and you are especially flexible today to make sure that our panelists look and sound good, that our questions get where they need to be, and our outgoing picture is of highest quality. So thank you, crew, for your commitment every day and for the extra effort today when you stepped up to the challenge by covering for Laura as well as for covering for Dave. If you are watching the show and interested in learning more about Office Hours, make sure to sign up via the daily email to learn how to volunteer as well as other things happening throughout the week. If we were to travel from question to question today, you would have accrued 41,076 frequent flyer miles on your journey. So thank you everybody for your uh, time today. We appreciate it. And make sure you stay through the credits to see all the effort that was involved in our show. Have a great week. I'm really looking forward to next week's show where we uh, do a bit of a reunion. So that should be fun. Looking forward to it. Yes, thank you, everyone. Um, Great conversation, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, thank I you, Laura. learned a lot. Yeah. Nice work. It's, it's, it's a huge.
huge topic to take in one swath and one chunk. Harshid, you and I should have a conversation. Stick around after in the debrief there. Um, I was going to ask, um, Windows 11 is being uh, stubborn. Uh, is it a different link uh, as far as uh, the after education debrief? Yes, the debrief is a link, different link, Hershey. Give me two seconds to 